Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we are joined by Prabir Perkayasta, who is the founder and editor of NewsClick. He is also the president of the Free Software Movement of India and an engineer and science activist. Today, we've invited Prabir on the program to talk about his article, Why We Are on the Long Road to COVID-19 Immunity, Even with Vaccines. Thanks for joining us, Prabir. Thank you. Thanks. To, good to be with you. Let's start by give us, I think most of our listeners will have a sense of how severe the situation is in the United States. Can you please give us a sense of the situation in India? Well, we are competing very strongly with the United States. And at the rate we are going, we should overtake them within about a month in total numbers, total cases. We are much lower at the moment on the death. That is correct because India has a much younger demography. So that helps in terms of keeping the death rate down. But in terms of total numbers, we are really doing pretty badly. So in, in that sense, uh, we are in a very similar situation to the United States, in spite of the fact that we had a fairly draconian lockdown early on, unlike the United States. But nevertheless, we don't seem to have implemented with any success and the numbers keep on going. And at the moment, we seem to be have seem to be in a state where both the government and the people seem to have sort of given up on being able to control it. That sounds similar to the United States. And you mentioned that giving up containing the COVID-19 pandemic is sort of a, an admission that both our public health systems have failed. And you mentioned that both in the United States, the most privatized healthcare system perhaps in the world, and also that India's public healthcare system has been ravaged and privatized. Can you talk about the role that this plays in making the pandemic even worse for the people of India and the United States? You see, the public health system is what has to contest with an epidemic. That's what the public health system was created for. And when you talk about privatized healthcare, it's a belief that infectious diseases are over and what people are going to get are something very specific and therefore the public health system is no longer very important. So the whole idea of the public health system is built on essentially the concept that disease spreads, it's infectious, and unless we take public health measures, state and the people together, you cannot contain disease. But there was this misconception, at least in the wealthy countries, that infectious diseases are the disease of poor countries. And as long as we take care of keeping those people out. And if there is a pandemic, Ebola, X, Y, Z, we contain it over there, we are okay. We don't really need to think about it. I think what we have all realized now that we are just one mutation away from a new epidemic. And this, this particular realization, unfortunately, had to come with what we are seeing now. It didn't happen with something which was milder or which was not as uh, spreading as quickly as we are seeing COVID-19 spread. So I think this is a big lesson for the world that in spite of what we say, we are one world and the people, all the countries are in open to the same set of problems. I think that realization is coming at least at some level, but the public health system being the focus of what we need to do is still not there except for the vaccine. I think the vaccine is the only public health measure that people are still talking about or accepting that that needs to be done. But beyond that, we don't see the response in terms of a public health response, strengthen the health system, strengthen 
how the people can be taken care of, how do you do contact tracing, how do you even provide support to the people who are sick. I don't think all those things are there as yet. So those elements of the public health system are still weak or missing. So speaking of vaccines, you mentioned, well, there's sort of a little kernel of good news in here mixed with a whole bunch of bad news. The good news, as you mentioned in the article, is that there's 41 vaccines that are, be, or you notice that, or you note that they're candidate vaccines um, that are currently under different phases of clinical trials and another 151 in the pipeline. So can you talk about the vaccines that exist now um, and then how they're different from previous vaccines, why they're being developed so quickly? So it shows that the scientific infrastructure exists if we want to tackle this kind of diseases. And I think that's the biggest proof that we have, that in about eight to nine months, we see a whole bunch of vaccines develop at the speed we have never seen before. The earliest vaccine, that uh, the speediest we ever had, was a five-year development of vaccines. And as you know, most of the vaccine uh, companies had didn't think that that was a priority. For big pharma was not interested in vaccines in any case. So in spite of all the scientific infrastructure we had, this was not a priority. COVID-19 made it a priority and we have a response from the scientific systems. And even the pharmaceutical companies know that if they do or plan for profiteering on a large scale, that can really legitimize private capital. So in that sense, we do see a much more uh, open response to this. But unfortunately, there are some uh, not so good signs as well. And this is what what I mentioned also about vaccine nationalism. Each country is campering for cornering whatever they can get. So those are the problems that we see. But let's also be cautious about the vaccines in the sense that these are the first set of vaccines. They may not be the most effective. And we probably, another two, three years, will be able to tweak them to be really much more effective. But the second caution that we need to have, we don't know how long the immunity will stay. So we might need repeated vaccination. The third, and that's an important one, that we don't have the infrastructure, even in advanced countries, to be able to vaccinate everybody, or at least 50 to 60% of the people. And some of these vaccines require extreme cold chains, 70 degrees, 80 degrees centigrade. So those are the challenges we still have. You note, I want to go back because we'll go through some of the challenges that you mentioned in a little more detail, but you mentioned that the virus is not respected by national, you know, it does not respect national boundaries. And while large parts of the global population have no guarantee of a vaccine, rich countries with only 13% of the world's population have already reserved more than half of the vaccines from leading vaccine manufacturers. So you let me move on because you note that India may be luckier than most other developing nations as it has a large capacity for manufacturing vaccines. Can you give us a sense of what the vaccine situation is specifically in India and how this is different from a lot of other developing nations? You see, India early on became a generic supplier of a lot of medicines. And they have we have the ability as a pharmaceutical industry or by both vaccines and biologics. Both are things that India has developed an infrastructure for. And one of the largest, in fact, the the largest uh, generic vaccine manufacturer is in India. And they have a tie-up now with AstraZeneca for the Oxford vaccine. 
So they have that capacity. This is not the only one. There are another two or three other relatively large ones. So the fact that you have a large generic vaccine manufacturing system already available means that it can be repurposed for any vaccine that's successful. And that seems to be the way Indian vaccine manufacturers are willing to go. Because the vaccine manufacturer takes place in India, therefore India can extract or force the vaccine manufacturers to reserve a part of it for, them, for India. But other countries, particularly the countries who don't have that infrastructure, are not in front of the queue, have not booked the vaccines in advance, are going to find it difficult. And this is where the WHO is, would have been really important if it had not been hamstrung the way it has, with the United States pulling out, taking out the money, and also certain other NGO uh, big funds coming in to create a, with WHO some, uh, some facility for the rest of the countries. But they don't seem to have raised the necessary amount of money required. And they're still about $700 million short. So we still don't know when and how much of the vaccine would be available to the rest of the world. And is it correct, you note in the article that China and Russia are not part of the COVAX program? So they're working out sort of bilateral programs? They're, are they yes, not contributing I, to that fund then? No. they have, You see, basically the COVAX also, the facility is being led by Gates Foundation and uh, certain other organizations. And they seem to be banking on more the Western pharmaceutical companies to produce the supplies of vaccines. That seems to be what they're banking on. And they, the, I don't think they also have shown a great deal of interest in Chinese or Russian vaccines coming in. At the moment, there is an enormous hostility to, towards China and Russia, particularly in the Western countries. And I see, for instance, a lot of misinformation being spread that they have allowed emergency use without any testing, which is just not true. So given the fact that this kind of uh, fear or, what shall we say, doubt exists about the intentions of the Chinese and the Russians, I think they are more interested in a bilateral relationship and they don't want to enter into the WHO, WHO has been captured by China kind of attacks. And therefore, they would like to at least have the ability to work out for themselves how these vaccines can or need to be supplied. So it's not a just one-way street. I think it, it's a both ways have acted in a particular way. And that's what we are beginning to see. You note the anti-vax context here in the United States. There's a tremendous amount of people who are very skeptical. I mean, the, you could see this. This has been decades in the making, but that's a conversation for another day. Is there any other nation in the world that has a context similar to the U.S. insofar as you have such a high rate of people who are skeptical of science and unwilling to sort of take the vaccine? You know, the people are very strange. Uh, most places in the world... They have belief in science and belief in uh, God. They have a belief in religion. They can have multiple contradictory ideas in, the, in their head. But given the fact that vaccine is very important in the we in the poorer countries, they have seen in their lifetime a whole bunch of infectious diseases being eradicated. And uh, polio is, is in our living memory. That's happened in front of us. So most people in these places do not have the reservation about vaccines. 
But in the United States, because infectious diseases, I suspect, were beaten back earlier, therefore that memory is not alive. And the United States is one of the few countries in the world which thinks that pub public health equals to socialism. And therefore, as socialism is bad, public health is bad. So there is a distrust of public health system, including vaccination. As along with anti-science beliefs, movements which have been there, and the, the a real the reservation regarding the government. I will say suspicion of the government itself. So you have a whole bunch of things which are combining together to build the anti-vax movement, anti-vaxxer movement that you see in the United States, which is some, which is I don't think replicated anywhere else in the world, in spite of the fact that they may be quote unquote socially, economically backward. How do you see this playing out over the next, say, several months, the next year? And how much of this do you think depends on whether or not Donald Trump remains in the White House or whether he leaves the White House? In other words, do you think there will be a significant difference to the United States' uh, approach to the pandemic if indeed Joe Biden wins the White House and if the Democrats uh, take over the Senate? Do you think that will matter? And, and how much are you sort of thinking about that on the other side of the world watching this uh, play out in the United States? You know, I, I'm going to say what I've said to a lot of my American friends, that actually in the U.S. elections, we cannot have a vote, that is true. But at least we should have a veto on the candidates, because unfortunately, American destruction that it can create is enormous. Yeah. So we all need that protection for ourselves. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not going to happen. Okay, so... I do think that at the moment, Trump's defeat is very important for all of us. And uh, he, it's not something only for the United States, but also for all of us. But at the same time, I do not think the needle is going to swing as very far away from where it is now. Because and the forces that have been unleashed or the forces which have brought Trump to power still continue. So if Trump is defeated, those forces will stay. And I don't think the right-wing conspiracy theorists or those who attack big government or who attack public health will let it go. So Trump out of power, you might discover, is as much of a problem as Trump in power. So I think what we need to do is think much more about the larger issues and how can we change that dialogue, that debate. And that's something which we need in other parts of the world too. Let's not forget. India has a very right-wing government at the moment, is using the pandemic to attack, in fact, all pro protests. It has taken emergency powers of the Disaster Management Act, centralized a lot of the governmental functions, which are supposed to be otherwise also part of what in the Indian federal structure, state government's functions. So we have all kinds of issues that are there and the COVID-19 pandemic has brought out the worst in the people as well as the best. So I think that's a battle that's going to continue, irrespective of whether Trump wins or loses. Right. It seems two of the main underlying issues, I'll, I'll ask you this as sort of a last question. It seems to us that two issues that must be addressed is capitalism and how that sort of underpins a lot of the crises that we face. And also tied with that, a sort of resurgence of internationalism. Uh, that this hyper-nationalism is not going, I mean, not only will it 
does it cause uh, destruction and wars and chaos in normal circumstances? But in the context of climate change, ecological devastation, the kinds of international cooperation that's needed to deal with the problems we face, um, this sort of uh, hyper-nationalism, uh, it seems to me, has to be uh, one of our main challenges, things that we uh, address and talk about. I completely agree with what you're saying, that we face the challenge of hyper-nationalism, extreme right-wing ideology taking at least grip of important sections of the people in the world, different parts of the world, and of course, that capitalism and the ideology of capitalism, that if you get rich, that's the best thing that can happen to everybody. Now, that kind of self-centeredness also plays into all of this. But at the same time, let's face it, we have two options. Either we fight this and defeat it. Otherwise, there is always the possibility that we descend into barbarism. And that it, let's not be ro so rosy, uh, you know, tinted about the future. Let's not be so optimistic about the future that good things will happen because bad things are happening now. And people will understand these bad things have happened because of all the things that we have discussed. It is something that we'll have to fight for, and that's a continuous battle. So, yes, it is true that all the things you said, which I agree with, but it is not necessary, therefore, that because it's true and because they're right, that it will necessarily win. So I think that is the battle we still have. And unfortunately, it is going to be a long and bitter battle. This is not going to be a short-term battle. That's not something that we can win in a day. It's a long, long battle. We have to fight for the hearts and minds of the people to defeat capitalism and the kind of narrow sectarian uh, right-wing nationalism that has overtaken much of the world. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And Prabir, I did this on short notice because I had come across this article and thought it was a fantastic article, one of the better articles I had read recently about the international and geopolitical implications of what's going to happen uh, as time moves along. And then I started to go back and read some of your previous articles, which made me want to interview you for like two or three hours. So let's do this. We'll cut this one off and make it about this article. And then if you'd be willing to, and at a better time for yourself, I would love to have you back on the program because most of our programs go anywhere from 30 to 90 minutes. And I would love to pick your brain about all sorts of issues if you'd be willing to do that. My pleasure. No issues at all. Great. I'm happy to do it. Well, thank, okay. thank you for your time, Prabir. I appreciate it. Thank you, Vincent. Good to be with you. Thank you. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we'll speak with you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.